Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talked to Fadi Ismail about how Fadi brought Turkish television programming to the Arab world. Then John, Will, and I discuss how audiences are changing in the Arab world. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Fadi Ismail is the founder and general manager of DKL Studios based in Dubai. He has over 30 years of experience in Arab media. And I met him more than 20 years ago when he was working for what was then the London-based and is now the Dubai-based NBC Group. Fadi, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. It's uh, great to be in Babel. So you've been in the Middle East media and entertainment world for almost three decades. What makes something work in terms of Middle Eastern entertainment, and how has that changed over your career? I think I was a witness to great changes, but unfortunately, I might say that those changes stagnated later on because there was this transformation from the traditional TV to, let's say, augmented TV. Augmented, not in the sense of reality, but oh, maybe it's reality. A higher level of TV content, higher level of TV sophistication, but it was never like the rest of the world. So that transformation... So that was what we were talking about when we talked in 1998, the first time we met, was that pan-Arab satellite television suddenly raised the production values from state-sponsored television and created things for the Arab world that were really on a top-flight international level. Yes, and I think we must have discussed what did that do to the Arabs. It brought them together more than 20, 30 years before that of ideology and rhetoric and supposedly nationalistic plans and parties and uh, propaganda. And here comes then the satellite TV, which brought Arabs together in taste. And for example, while the Egyptian content has always been the pan-Arab content and still is, but it had its up and downs, and the Syrian content was able to benefit from one of the gaps of, or the weaknesses of the Egyptian content and took a prime seat. Then the war in Syria stopped that. The Lebanese content was not able to go beyond the entertainment, the, the shows, the voice, the Arabs Got Talent, the musical contest, those kind of big flagship, but not in the drama and the feature films. The Gulf drama has been static for a number of years, and now it is the time for it to go into the second stage because that's where supposedly the money is. That's where all the resources are geared there and advertisers are there. So I've witnessed those transformation of strength and weaknesses of different regional powers in production, in Arab media dominance. I understand you were involved in trying to launch a show about a hermaphrodite looking for gender identity. What are audiences looking for in the Arab world? What does today's audience in the Arab world want when it looks for entertainment? There was one of these movies, What Women Want, and that is about reading the mind. And this is one of the most difficult questions because everybody claims he or she has an answer but that's one of the most mysterious questions because research is weak, because we don't have 
the people meet her. We don't have lots of tools of research that exist other places where you can tell what people are watching and would like to watch. Now, this is the prerogative of today's world of the digital services who have lots of data that they can utilize, but usually they deal with it as if it is state secret. You are credited with a person who watched some Turkish soap operas and said that would make great Arab television in 2007. What did you see there that you said, I think an Arab audience wants that? Let me tell you what others didn't see, because this is the danger of research if it is not scientific and with a representative sample. I will tell you more about the Turkish in a minute, but after I found that Turkish and got the approval of my board, of my boss, to go and invest and do something never done before in the Arab world, I took that content to a focus group of different female professional viewer, let me call them, from different parts of the Arab world and gave them the Turkish content dubbed into Syrian and dubbed into Egyptian and told them, what do you like? What do you think Arabs would like? And there was almost a consensus that Arabs will not like Turkish content. So, <laughs> so that is just an indication that whoever you ask that question might think that they know and they have the answer, but the answer is once you do it, it has a different taste. So what did I find in the Turkish? I find an Arab a plus plus. I found an Arab culture, Arab society, but more modern, more open-minded, less restrictive. So the escapism in it is so attractive, so appealing that it had an immediate impact. And it was, as I jokingly call it, the best thing that happened in the entertainment business since man landed on the moon. So I think this was a historical and a hysterical thing because of the amount of viewership and buzz that happened. But then, as you well know, it started all of a sudden and it ended all of a sudden as well. And you know the answer. Why? Yeah, I, I want to get to the end part. But first, I want to talk about the beginning part. You've thought a lot. You've thought for decades about what Arab audiences want. Is there something you think you understand that other people don't understand? I can't claim that credit. I have the modesty of saying we don't understand. <laughs> and I think I will add to it that we, the senior guys, I've had the experience of 30 years, we have to admit that there is a lost battle. The hearts and minds of the youngs, yes, what are they consuming? Are they consuming traditional TV stations all over 22 countries? I don't think so. Is there anything to prove me right or wrong? No. But my hunch says there is a battle that is lost every day. And those lost, those, those youngsters, well, under 25 is not youngster, but those who TV have lost, I don't know where they are other than on social media, but not on another medium. I mean, yes, of course, the Netflixes of the world, the Amazon have made a breakthrough, but they don't have local content. Uh, they've been talking about local content, but there is no Arab local original content. I mean, yes, they're getting content that as a second run and third run and whatever, but the original content, you don't find it. 
it's not there on the big streaming services of the world yet. Do you think there's some there's a different kind of storytelling that young Arabs want that other audiences don't? Is there something unique to the way young Arab audiences think about themselves and stories that content producers could tap into? I think that if they want, I'll give you an example. If they want superheroes, there is enough stories about superheroes that they don't need an Arab to do an Arab Superman to watch it. There is enough Supermans all over the world in the media. What I think they need and they will enjoy is the local stories, stories from the culture, the mythology, the history, society, stories that they feel are relevant to them. And that's why, for example, the Turkish meant a lot more than the American series, because it's just more relevant, more relevant in their taste, in their behavior, in their culture. And you need Arabic original storytelling, whether it is even even daring in the sense that, do you know, John, that from the genre that every country in the world produces, the legal drama, crime drama, police drama, science fiction, horror, medical drama, legal drama, we might have only two or three that everybody repeats in its production. We have so much missing. Teenage, teen drama, musicals, all of that do not exist. There is so much that one can do, but maybe up till now, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't allowed. Nobody wanted to take a risk. There has to be a major change for Arab storytelling to be able to grab the attention of the millions and the tens of millions of youngsters hungry for for content, but not finding it. My understanding is that a lot of the Gulf governments are putting a lot of money, especially Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE, into production. And then, of course, Gulf governments own, or people close to Gulf governments own, most of the large broadcasting platforms. Shouldn't there be enough money to produce entertainment if the governments want to produce entertainment? You are asking a very pivotal question. Let me answer it by saying, do you think money on its own is enough to do anything? I think money is a facilitator, but you have to have a vision. You have to have a strategy. You have to have the proper tools. You have to have the trust. You have to believe in who can do that, who can take the vision and implement it. Money never alone do things. And if it does, it will be for a very short time. So to answer the question, the Gulf is capable to produce content that takes our storytelling to the next higher level because the money is there and the openness. And also there is no history. There's no baggage. The baggage is very superficial. You can start fresh and do things. And you have tens of thousands of young students who graduated from the best universities in the world. So there is the right combination of elements. You just have to mix them. You know, you like the tabbouleh, yeah? Tabbouleh is a wonderful, simple thing. It has only three ingredients. Only when you mix it right, it tastes good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I need your recipe because my tabbouleh has about uh, seven ingredients. (laughs) Uh, That's a a very modern tabbouleh, (laughs) postmodern. Um, For a long time, I've heard about political messages being injected by governments into programming. And one of the issues that gets a lot of attention in the West is both negative and positive portrayals of Jews and Israelis on Arab media. We had recently the, the politicization of Turkish 
programming. As you said, it was taken off the air first temporarily in Egypt and then more permanently from some of the Gulf broadcasters for political reasons. Are people making too much of the idea that media is a vehicle for political messaging? Are people making too much of the idea that governments are trying to intervene in media for political purposes? Most media is either owned directly or indirectly. So there's no surprises owned by governments directly or indirectly. Therefore, there is no surprises about the messages that come. So that's not the issue. And to be honest, remember, TV speaks to the lowest common denominator between audience, the masses. It is a mass media. And in the mass media, if there is one shot or a couple of scenes in one show that talks about the Jews, like what happened with an NBC program last Ramadan, and all hell broke loose. Change is not something that you do for a few minutes and then you say, I've changed. It's an ongoing, continuous attempt to make an impact on the minds and the hearts of your audience. So if one, just one thing happened and created that kind of controversy when the Jews were mentioned in this program on NBC, should this not happen? I think now you have something called, the re we always had it, the remote control. But you can go and watch one of the other TV stations that is pro-resistance and pro-whatever political ideology. What I'm trying to say is there is, in terms of political change, so much more that the media can do in a subtle way, in a very seamless way, in a very smart way. But unfortunately, many of these tools, the messages that comes there either are not smart or on the other hand, because who they are, because who owns them, sometimes it might tarnish the effectiveness of the messaging. There were some criticisms that the Turks were trying to inject an ideology of neo-Ottomanism into some of the serials that were circulated in the Arab world. Did you ever see a sign of that? Do you have a sense that, that governments outside the Arab world have been trying to use entertainment as a way to advance their own governmental interests? Yes and no. Yes, but it's not a secret that there were some very pro-Ottoman grandeur, how they founded the empire. That was two, three, four series that created a big buzz and a big impact. But remember, Turkey, when I went to buy all these series, it's a democracy in the sense that there are conglomerates owning production houses and companies that just produces content to make money. It's a business. And therefore, it's not like a monopoly. This is not North Korea, where everything has to be filtered through the government I, now, obviously, so what I'm trying to say, yes and no to the question about government trying to use the soft power of media and content. And this is something that has been done and will continue to be done at various degree of success. If I wanted to know where young people in the Arab world are going, their heads, their hearts, and I wanted to look at entertainment as a guide to that, what should I be paying attention to? What trends, what phenomena should I be noticing? Unfortunately, the absence of research, research makes answering this with any certainty and credibility difficult. But for example, Netflix has a daily, when you open Netflix, it tells you the top 10 programs in this country or that country. You can get a feel 
But if you tell me what I think is, I think it's going to be, a, you might laugh and have this simplistic answer, good content. We miss, we need good content. Good content can be something mysterious, can be something science fiction-y, it can be something, a teen drama, it can be horror. It has to be good and well done. And the story appeals to whoever is watching in an emotional way. It has to be relevant to how you look at it. I feel that today, if I got it right, there is 500 series produced per year in the United States. Add to that the same number maybe in Europe. Add to that another 300 or 200 series produced in the Arab world. You have at least a thousand series per year that audience can tap into. It is the chaos of the world of entertainment in terms of drama. And there is so much, so much that everybody will find something that he or she likes. I don't think it is mass media anymore. The mass has to become targeted. I like something, you like something else. We don't have to have millions. I mean, the ending of one of the Turkish series at its 130 episodes, I think we had statistics that 70 million people watched it. This is, I mean, the advertisers in America would love to see those numbers. Not even the States you will find such achievement. But I don't think that will be repeated. Now it's fragmented and segmented. And that makes the money problem of producing things all that much harder. Absolutely. And I don't think that my dream is to do to the Arab content what I help to do to the Turkish. Turkish has become a worldwide phenomena, partially to take a little bit of credit because of how I helped it to start, to launch in the Arab world, and then it became a world phenomena. I would like to do the same because, listen, the Israelis are not better than us. The Danish are not better than us. The Spaniards are not better than us. They all have content that the world is watching. What is wrong? Why don't we have content that is good enough for the world to watch? I think it's a matter of time and some perseverance and some open mind and some luck. <laughs> that is, Mel. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, John. Next up, John, Will, and I talk about how television audiences in the Arab world are changing. We've heard a lot about people gathering together to watch TV shows during Ramadan. It almost sounded from your conversation with Fadi, John, that this phenomenon was being threatened. It was. And then, you know, one of the things that has been striking for decades in the Arab world has been the rise of these incredibly popular serials that run one night a week for every night of Ramadan. So you have 30 different episodes and people gather together and they watch them and they talk about them. And it really drives conversations, not only within countries, but between countries. What I heard Fatty talking about, which surprised me a little bit, was his sense that in many ways, the broadcast audience is going away and individuals are watching what they watch individually, that there's no more mass experience. We've seen some of this in the States with the rise of streaming and Netflix and everything else. But I think in the Arab world where television and Arab satellite television in particular played such an important role bringing the region together and creating a sort of single Arab identity that wasn't based on ideology, but was based on what people were exposed to. And it felt to me like he thinks that's all going away too. There's not a single conversation. There are lots of narrow conversations and it's harder for anybody, be an individual or a group or a government, 
to influence that conversation. And I think that has an impact on how general the general public's opinion about certain issues changes as well. When you do have those shared experiences where, as John said, where everyone is viewing the same thing at the same time and in between it, there's space to discuss it, there's space to chat, there's space for articles to come out and people analyzing the issues. That is fertile ground for the general public's opinions on certain issues, whether they're social issues, political issues, whatever it might be, to shift. And I think that's part of the reason why soaps have been successful in the West and why they've been an important vehicle for changing our public's opinions about things. And I think that that really, as the audience fractures in this way, and as that communal experience erodes, in some ways then media and and entertainment does become a less powerful source of changing or influencing opinions. But we still have the role of social media driving it. The difference is that social media seems very much organic and grassroots, even though governments in the region do try to influence it, control it, shape it. But the ability of either governments or media organizations to direct it seems to be diminishing. And therefore, even the ability of the region itself to have an internal conversation is being compromised because the conversation in the region can be as easily driven by external things as internal. And, you know, one of the things he said very clearly is what people watch whenever they watch, often through pirated means, is from all over the world. There's nothing uniquely Arab about any of it. The Arab world is starting in a very different place, but it may be that social media drives the Arab world to being both more heterogeneous, but also in a very different place from where it is right now. Fanny was also getting at that the people making shows don't really understand their audiences, and there's a lot of guesswork going on. Why is that? Well, I was surprised because when Fanny and I first spoke in the spring of 1998, One of the things he was concerned about was there's not much audience research and we're going to get better at that. And speaking now in the summer of 2020, he said there's not much audience research. We have to get better at that. It's partly because of the financial model of Arab television, which doesn't have a commercial basis behind it. It has a government support basis behind it. So it's basically governments decide to subsidize the creation of content. But it's a little strange that this far along, there hasn't been a better effort even by governments that care about broadcasting, that they haven't really tried to understand how do we meet the needs? What are the expectations of our population when they get broadcasting, when they get content? And how do we meet it? There is some part of the mentality that feels to me like people who are used to having a monopoly. But as we heard Fatty say quite clearly, Arab producers are losing to non-Arab producers because there's so much excellent content, whether it's from Spaniards or Italians or Germans or Americans or somebody else, that keeping Arab audiences is harder and harder. You have to wonder what that does when young Arabs have basically tuned out from a societal conversation. On the other hand, he said he feels there's an opening because their needs really aren't being met. Nobody's telling stories that are meaningful to them. I actually, I heard something recently, which I think illustrates the lengths to which companies like Netflix do this. So apparently when you go onto Netflix, you see a sort of tile with a preview for a TV show. And you might think, oh, that's the tile for the TV show. But actually there are about 30 different images. And the one that you see is dependent on what you have watched in the past. So if you tend to watch shows about inspirational individuals in history or whatever, 
And then if you go to something like Tiger King, then you're likely to see a single person in some kind of inspirational pose. Maybe Tiger King isn't the best example for that. But if you like watching animal documentaries, then you would see a picture of a tiger. And this is just so fundamental to how media and entertainment works here that it's sort of shocking that even if the governments have this data, that the people who are producing it don't. So how do they advertise it? How do they find ways of getting to the right audience or selling a TV show in a way that the audience is likely to be attracted to? It seems like it's impossible. So uh, yeah, striking. Is there a method for that or... Are governments struggling with that now? There certainly is the technology to understand what people are watching. We see it with Nielsen boxes and everything else. What I heard Fatty talking about was just losing young audiences to television in general and people streaming whatever they want on whatever device they want when they want to see it. That gives you a lot of data. And it may be that production moves from people thinking about mass audiences over the airwaves to smaller audiences over different devices. What that does though, is it may mean that the actual amount of money that goes into any individual production is reduced because rather than doing things for three networks or five networks or seven networks, you're doing things for 600 streaming channels. And Fedi was talking about that in relation to Turkey. And I think part of the reason why the Turkish soaps were so popular when they were being broadcast was because They were touching on similar issues and touching on issues that perhaps would still have been seen as more taboo in the Arab world, drinking or in parts of the Arab world, but drinking alcohol, abortion, things like that, which were covered in some of these soaps, but in a way that is still grounded in a Muslim society that people can still sort of relate to. And and I think that that part of how you see yourself in what you watch is important if it's going to change or influence opinions. Tune in next week for a meze on fake gemstones in the Middle East. And a special thanks this week to our intern, Sarah Thomas, who came up with the idea for this episode and also did the research. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.